This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jem Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program, Issues in Perspective. In our first perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about Social Security. The economist Robert Samuelson has an interesting take on Social Security. He calls it welfare. Here's why. First of all, it taxes one group to support another group, meaning it is a pay-as-you-go and not a contributory scheme where people's own savings pay their later benefits. Secondly, Congress can constantly change, as it has done, the benefit package that's a part of Social Security, as it reflects on changing needs, economic conditions, and politics. Let's think together about this provocative thesis, Social Security as Welfare. First of all, a few thoughts about the Social Security Trust Fund. Since the 1940s, Social Security has been a pay-as-you-go program. Most benefits are paid by payroll taxes on today's workers. In 2010, those taxes covered 91% of benefits. The trust fund's $2.6 trillion would provide only three and a half years of benefits, totaling $700 billion in 2010. Congress has repeatedly altered benefits. Indeed, from 1950 to 1972, it increased benefits nine times, including a doubling of the program in the early 1950s. And in 1972, it indexed benefits to inflation. Samuelson writes, contrary to the Obama administration's posture, Social Security does affect our largest budget problem. Annual benefits already exceed payroll taxes, and the gap will grow. The trust fund holds treasury bonds, which then are redeemed, and the needed cash can be raised, therefore, only by borrowing, taxing, or cutting other programs. Secondly, the connection between Social Security and the rest of the budget is brutally direct. The arcane accounting of the trust fund obscures what is happening. Samuelson concludes that Social Security is, in fact, welfare. Benefits shift. They are not strictly proportionate to wages, but are skewed to favor low-wage earners, a value judgment proportionate to what is going on in terms of who deserves the most help. And they're not paid from their own contributions, but from what other pay people pay in the system in terms of the Social Security taxes. The United States, therefore, continues to foster the folly of seeing Social Security as an earned benefit for 54 million Americans. It is not an earned benefit. It is not separate from the rest of the budget. The reality of Social Security is brutal. It reflects a much deeper problem about the United States budget, the subject of our next perspective. As we move into this perspective, I would like to think about the 2012 budget of the United States government, a contrast in perceived realities. Well, the debate over the 2011 federal budget is presumably over. After taking the nation to the brink, even possibly facing a possible shutdown of the federal government, 
The congressional leaders cut the budget and finally passed the 2011 budget, which runs through the 30th of September. Incidentally, as a sidebar, the Democratic Party failed to produce a budget all year, even though they controlled both the White House and both houses of Congress, which shows how politically volatile making a budget is today. As I approach this perspective on the 2012 federal budget, I find the words of the economist Robert Samuelson, whom I quoted in the first perspective, both refreshing as well as brutally honest. Listen to his words. Quote, We in America have created a suicidal government. By suicidal, I mean that government has promised more than it can realistically deliver, and as a result, repeatedly disappoint by providing less than people expect or jeopardizing what they already have. Few Americans realize the extent of their dependency. The Census Bureau reports, for example, that in 2009, about half, 46% of our population, received at least one federal benefit. Let me itemize these. 46.5 million, Social Security. 42.6 million, Medicare. 42.4 million, Medicaid. 36.1 million, food stamps. 3.2 million veterans benefits, and 12.5 million housing subsidies. I could go on. The census list does not include tax breaks. Counting all of these, perhaps three-quarters or more of Americans receive some sizable government benefit, either through tax breaks or these direct programs that I itemized a moment ago. The esteemed political scientist James Q. Wilson writes, Once politics was only about a few things, today it is about nearly everything. The concept of vital national interest is thereby stretched. We deploy government casually to satisfy any mass desire, correct any perceived social shortcoming, or remedy any market deficiency. The consequence, Samuelson maintains, is political overload. The system can no longer make choices, especially unpleasant choices, for the good of the nation as a whole. Public opinion is hopelessly muddled. Polls by the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago consistently show that Americans want more spending for education, health care, Social Security, indeed almost everything. But the same polls between half and two-thirds of Americans say their taxes are too high. Huge budget deficits follow, therefore, logically. But, of course, most Americans want the budget deficits trimmed, too. The bottom line of all of this is that few Americans would surrender their own benefits, subsidies, or tax breaks, which is an absolute precondition for any type of success in deficit reduction or tax reform. The United States government is indeed suicidal because it breeds expectations that it cannot meet. These insightful comments by the economist Robert Samuelson set the stage for the primary point of this perspective, the 2012 budget. First of all, the approach of the two major political parties has been instructive 
and has in no small way contributed to the budget crisis. The Democratic Party believes that the economic crisis that we are now going through and perhaps coming out of made the electorate yearn for security, thereby creating openness to large public programs, one thinks of health care. This, therefore, led them to enact the huge stimulus bill, this expensive health care act, and other expansions of the federal government. The Republican Party, by contrast, believes that the crisis alarmed voters about a government out of control with a huge deficit. That party wants to stop the spending binge and cut the deficit. And the 2010 elections apparently demonstrate that the Republican Party is closer to the mark. As everyone knows, but few want to actually accept, the major reason for the long-term debt explosion is our system of entitlement which the recent health care legislation only exacerbated. So far, including the 2012 budget President Obama proposed to Congress, the Democratic Party has declined to offer any solutions to the nation's fiscal crisis. In his State of the Union address, the president said it is important to confront entitlement, but proposed absolutely no way to do so. His budget proposed no reform and would actually accelerate quite extensively the growth of debt, doubling it over the next 10 years. That's almost unimaginable. That is surely and amazingly short-sighted. Furthermore, the president has completely ignored the recommendations of his own Deficit Reduction Commission, the Simpson-Bowles Commission. It is only the proposal of Paul Ryan, congressman from Wisconsin, that is realistic in a response to the commission's recommendations. And that's the subject I want to address next. As I am taping this program, President Obama is going to address the nation, and he's going to talk about a deficit reduction plan. I do not know what that will include. But he's obviously doing that because Congressman Ryan has come up with a very specific plan to reduce the budget deficit by almost $5 trillion. That's why it's important now for us to talk about Congressman Ryan's proposal. Paul Ryan is chairman of the House Budget Committee, and he's offered an alternative to the president's vision and budget. He calls it the path to prosperity. Basically, Ryan's proposal cut $6.2 trillion in spending from the president's budget over the next decade, reduces the deficit as a percentage of the economy, and puts the nation on the path of actually paying off its national debt. It brings federal spending to below 20% of GDP, consistent with the post-war average, and it reduces the deficit by 4.5%. trillion. Arguably provocative and controversial, Ryan's proposal cannot be ignored. It is the most serious attempt to reform government in at least a generation. It offers voters what they say they want, a blueprint to address the roots of the fiscal disorder and dysfunction of the U.S. budget and its deficit. It also addresses significant reform and cost savings in Medicare, Medicaid, and to some extent Social Security, basically all of which the president's budget ignores. 
Ryan's proposal reduces non-defense discretionary spending by 30%, farm subsidies by $30 billion, and readjusts both corporate tax structures and individual taxation rates by eliminating deductions and exemptions in many ways. A comparison to President Obama's budget proposal with Congressman Ryan's budget proposal is a study in the contrast of perceived realities. Now, this leads me thirdly to some thoughts and comments about these ideas dealing with budget reduction, deficit reduction, and all that needs to be dealt with in reforming the federal system. Whether you agree with Congressman Ryan's proposal or not, he has provided the nation with the leadership it has not had, an elected official willing to issue a proposal, willing to take risks, willing to face the political perils of reform and change the way this government functions in the United States. Someone wants to find insanity as continuing to do the same thing but expecting different results. That is where the United States is right now. We continue to do the same thing in our spending, in our borrowing, but expect different results. Congressman Ryan is proposing something radically different than the status quo. Indeed, columnist David Brooks has eloquently stated, Ryan has filled the vacuum left by the president's passivity. His proposal sets the standard for any serious discussion of the budget and the future of this nation. The context for the debate has now been created. The current welfare state of the United States of America is simply unsustainable. And anyone who is intellectually honest, whether from the left or the right of the political spectrum, realizes that this nation must revise its social contract with its citizens. Ryan has moved us off unreality island, David Brooks says. He's forcing Americans to confront the implications of their choices. With a few straightforward changes, his budget could be transformed into a plausible center-right package that would produce a fiscally sustainable welfare state while addressing the nation's structural economic problems. His blueprint is brave and profoundly forward-looking. It seeks nothing less than to adapt the currently unsustainable welfare state to the demographic realities of the 21st century. Those who disagree with his proposal must not engage in their usual demagoguery, which has already begun. They must engage his ideas, engage his proposals. His is the first serious attempt to confront the brutal facts of this nation's fiscal crisis. It should be the basis for the discussion of solutions, not an opportunity to demonize with irrational demagoguery. That is why I have begun to pray that God will give our political leaders in the office of the president and in the Congress, both House and Senate, the temerity, the fortitude, and the wisdom to face up to the crisis of government dependency that they have created 
and seek to solve it. We must redefine the role of government in our lives. Congressman Ryan has given us an opportunity to do this. May we as a nation not let this moment pass without a serious discussion of this very question. We must reduce our expectations. We must reduce our dependency on the state. And the only way to do that is to address the entitlement programs of Medicare, Medicaid, and ultimately Social Security. And then also the broader issues of the spending binge and therefore the borrowing binge that this government has engaged in over the last decade and a half. We can no longer ignore this. Congressman Ryan has given us a baseline for discussing it. May our leaders not fail us as they have done so many times in the past. In our third and final perspective on the program today, I would like to make a few personal observations about health care in America. And this is very personal. I am not a medical doctor, nor do I understand all of the complexities of health insurance. But I have spent time in a hospital as both a patient and as someone who visits hospitals to comfort friends and those whom I care about. I also believe that there are several common sense principles that we are not following as a nation. Here are a few of my personal observations. Health insurance, whether through one's employer or through a government entitlement, does not force the consumer to even consider the cost of health care. When one presents the insurance card to a provider, there is often a copay cost, but one has no idea of the total cost of that health care. Discernment, comparative information from other health care providers never enters into the decision. Most of us are never even aware of the total cost of the health care we're receiving. It is the only major part of our decision-making as citizens that involve money where we do not consider the cost. It seems reasonable to me that any reform of our health care system must force American citizens to be wise consumers. Somehow, we must reform the health care system so that those who consume health care begin to view it as any other decision they make involving money. Consider cost, consider the benefits, consider the quality, and what are my options? Currently, Nothing like this is even a part of healthcare decisions we make. And that seems silly to me. Common sense tells me that I should view healthcare just like any other major purchase I make. Currently, that is not how I look at it. Recent reports have demonstrated, secondly, that medical schools in the United States are not graduating enough primary care and emergency physicians to fill future needs. Indeed, Marvin Alasky writes that rather than moving toward organizational and financial constraints of socialized medicine, we should find ways to make the practice of frontline medicine more attractive. We are going to have a major crisis in the future 
We are simply not graduating enough primary care and emergency physicians. And that seems to me to be a crisis in the making. Thirdly, it also seems to me in these personal observations I'm making that the absence of health insurance is not the same as the absence of quality health care. The new health care legislation seems to disagree with that premise. It focuses on health insurance, not quality care. Number four, it also seems to me that we must challenge the growing perception that government has the obligation to take the risk out of living. Government cannot do that. This pervasive assumption is absolutely lethal to our republic and creates financially unsustainable promises. Witness Medicare, Medicaid, and even Social Security. Number five, it also seems to me personally that we must challenge the idea, now the vital center of the health care legislation passed this last summer, that health care is a basic human right in America. In my judgment, and common sense tells me this, health care is not a basic human right. It cannot be viewed that way. Even if this were a proper approach, what kind of health care are we talking about when we denominate it as a basic human right? All health care? Are we entitled to all available health care technology no matter what the cost? Do we truly believe that as a civilization, we regard health care on the same level as First Amendment rights, for example? Finally, in these personal reflections, I believe rather strongly that we must force American citizens to accept some form of the consequences of their personal lifestyle decisions. And that's a strong sentence, force American citizens. But think with me about this. Is there a human right to health care if a person chooses to be obese? Is there a human right to health care if a person chooses to smoke cigarettes? Is there a human right to health care if a human chooses to consume alcohol at a dangerous rate? It seems to me that we need to have some kind of discussion in this civilization when it comes to health care about personal responsibility and accountability when it comes to accepting the consequences of certain lifestyle choices, including consequences in terms of personal health. Rarely is this kind of discussion ever a part of health care debates or proposals. In short, I am profoundly concerned about the direction the United States has taken with the health care legislation passed last summer. It seems to me to be a recipe for national disaster, and it defies some basic common-sense perspectives. It is not good public policy, nor does it address some of the basic issues dealing with health care in this nation. And I can only say, may God give us the wisdom, his grace, and the courage to turn this around. 
You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.